Make a move it, then she'll call him. Forest fires, Google's ballin'. Take a chance and roll the dice one day. If you're a DM player, find you. Millennials can join this quest too. Expedition, we're gonna find a way. Welcome to this very special episode of Expedition to Grizzly Peaks. Um, it is my great honor to have Ron Edwards with me, um, who um, I've been really wanting to chat to for quite a while now. And I hope, uh, I hope the next hour or so, depends how much time, I think Ron's triple booked me or double booked me or something. We'll see how much time we get. Um, Ron, um, and, and I'm also late for the interview, so it's been a disaster really today. So hopefully <laughs> that great, um, the great setup for this will, will not, will not in interfere with the quality of what you're about to hear. So yeah, over to you, Ron, please introduce you to, to our listeners. Well, thank you so much. And I'm not sure I'm, I'm worthy of the great honor. I'll do my best. Uh, to introduce, uh, boringness aside, I have been role-playing since the late 70s, and I have been publishing games for the last couple of decades plus, and I have uh, a number of, I have my own publishing company, Adept Press, and I have recently folded that into my Swedish company, Adept Play, because I live in Sweden now. Nice. Um, nice. Yes. And uh, in, then in, in St see. Stockholm or Gothenburg? No, I live in, in a I live in a smaller city. Yeah, I live in a smaller city that uh, I quite like. So, okay, we have uh, a couple of things to go over briefly. I guess I've published a number of games. They include Sorcerer, Circle of Hands, Troll Babe, Spiona, um, a number of others. And I was very active at a website for about twelve to thirteen years called The Forge. I was a founder of the forge mm. and so that was a, a big thing for a long time and it involved a lot of, of activity at gen con as well and i guess that's kind of where we're coming in mm, absolutely and let me tell you a few things about why i wanted to speak to you so much um so i i used to play Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid, um, and like a lot of kids, at about the time that I discovered alcohol and girls, I gave up. <laughs> I think that's a common story. Um, I, I figured there must be something better I can be doing with my time. It took me 30 years to realize, actually, no, there really isn't anything better you can be doing with your time. <laughs> well, that must have been quite, quite, some, uh, quite some booze and gals to come Oh, boy, right? yeah. No, no, okay. no. no. Um, but um, I started playing again in 2004. 1415 so 30 year gap um i yeah that's that's quite interesting that's time travel right there. that is uh, totally time travel so i played ad and d I, I had the homes basic i had um right. advanced dungeons and dragons i'm sure we played some other games but they didn't really stick in my head we, i know we i had the traveler box set but I were you like me utterly blindsided by the fact that advanced D, &D turned out not to be the step up from Holmes that they claimed it was going to be. I, I so was all of a sudden confused. You, yeah, so there you were holding two completely different role-playing games, one in each hand, going, wait, what on earth? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I was like, okay. ha, but 
these don't seem to fit together. It's like one's mm-hmm. like, yeah. Um, and, and then we had Traveller. We, I'm, uh, my, uh, I had Bushido as well. Um, we had, oh God, uh, Behind Enemy Lines. I'm sure no one remembers that, uh, like a World War II RPG. Um, we had Boot Hill. We had um, Gangbusters. Mm-hmm. We, 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 I don't think we played most of them very much. It was all D&D, really, because the others just seemed You like might want to revisit Bushido. Yeah. That is a sweet-ass game that I have never appreciated until recently. Really? I remember it coming out. I remember it getting all dissed because it was too complicated and mm. too exotic. And when I just went back and went through the rules and everything, I'm like, this is a beautiful, elegant thing. What's he oh, talking about? Really? So, okay, yeah. I must look it up. Actually, a friend of mine is running, is about, has been running a game of it, but I just haven't had the time to join yeah. him. He plays on, like, um, you know, bad times that don't work for me. But so point being of all this mm-hmm. preamble, 30 year gap. So I wow. time traveled, I missed out everything mm-hmm. <laughs> from 1985 until 2014. Can you imagine? Like I had well, no idea. Well, it's technology and socializing too. I mean, you completely, the the entirety of what I think of as the, uh, the, the utter dominance of a very few distributors, which literally reshaped the hobby because you had to get through that filter to be mm. successfully published, completely altered, you know, that the, the ownership of TSR shifting, all sorts of things, which were really hobby shaping, let alone the impact of the internet. Yeah, um, it's, so it's technology and economics, not merely, I mean, if it was just one process, one, one industry, if you want to call it that, you just would have missed a bunch of games. Yeah. But you didn't. You missed, no. you you came in. That's why I'm saying time travel. It's a yeah. different entire context. But anyway, go on. So, on. so let me tell you how I became aware of you specifically, mm-hmm. <laughs> and more widely. Let's say the Forge. And mm-hmm. can I call it story gaming? Will you hate me if I call it that? I don't know. I don't yes. know what you. You'll hate me. Okay. Um, but but this other way of playing. So um, at least to my mind. Um, so. I um, started listening to a few podcasts, and um, when I when I returned, I discovered that there were these gaming podcasts. I was like, wow, okay, and that's that's kind of what triggered me to go and buy um, the new edition of that D and D. Of course, I'm going to start with fifth edition D and D because that's what I left off with, and um, and and then I discovered there was all this other stuff that was going on, and that I guess sometime around. Um, 2005-ish, um, there was this podcast called Sons of Cryos, because I was really interested in podcasts. And then Sons of Cryos, these two guys from Ithaca, and they were talking I'm about- I'm well aware of who they are. Yes, oh, you're well aware. Okay. So they were talking about the Forge a lot and about the, 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 some of the games that you had written and that Vince Baker had written and Emily Care Boss and all these names that I'd never heard of. And so I started digging into it and I thought, this is amazing. It's like there's this parallel evolutionary path, completely different really from what I was aware of as gaming. And it really intrigued me. Um, and and it also really appealed to me that, um, because I never really was that into the sort of wargaming, crunchy, mechanical side. I was always interested in the collaborative storytelling and the connecting with other people around the table. That was the thing that I loved. Um, I'm, I'm a bit of a 
you know, I'm I'm not really much of a mechanics or system person, although I understand the purpose of them and why they're important. And and then more recently, I've become aware of the OSR, of course. And what's very interesting, because in a way, it's playing purely into my nostalgia. And what's interesting is that the Forge and the theories that you came up with and the type of games that you came up with are virtually unknown in the circles that I'm kind of inhabiting now in this sort of OSR um, area. And I find it fascinating that there's all these different strands of gaming that seemingly evolve independently and maybe don't even cross over very much. So that's that's how I became aware of you. And, and then very recently, I, I did a talk to a bunch of designers about, about what you can learn um, um, from gaming to um, uh, to kind of influence or, or to help you as a designer. And, and uh, in design, I mean, generally, it's like digital user experience design. That's my profession. Oh, okay. but I, I, I know I, I know inherently there's some very interesting things from gaming, game design, gaming design that are very useful to know in, in this in this fairly universal way as a designer. Um, and I, I won't necessarily go into them in this in this chat because they're kind of pretty pretty specific to user experience. But maybe by the end we, we get onto it. But so that's my preamble, and I, I hope I didn't say anything too much that was completely off or offended you in any way. Yeah. <laughs> but um, don't worry maybe... about offending me. This is not the this is not an issue. <laughs> okay. Um, so why don't you tell me about what I got wrong in that whole kind of. <laughs> ridiculous potted history well I, I don't really want to say wrong because you're talking <laughs> about the way you came in and what you've seen yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that i will say uh that you may find very interesting is that a great deal of people who participated at the forge uh showed up with games or proto games that they were interested in doing and got a little feedback on them then other people who showed up were not really all that participatory there. They had their own things that they might or might not work on. But what they were primarily inspired by was two things. One was that I, in particular, really tried to backstop my genres with solid literature. So I wasn't, it's not like I learned horror from role playing and then did my own horror game. You know, I, I really tried to be drawing from my experience with media sensulato and I, I was really explicit about it and this spoke to a lot of people because that's something they felt had been lost from the early days right. so they so that's so there's a number of people who who kind of got into that and they also really got into the idea of publishing your own game with pride and that's one thing that you missed in the 30 years was the eclipse of publishing your own game with pride there was sort of a fake record industry a fake comics industry that people wanted it to be and they treated companies as though they were like dc comics or like you know um a movie studio and they begged or pleaded or hoped that they would get picked up by them not wow. realizing that those guys were just you know two assholes in an apartment <laughs> with a telephone on an ironing board too right so yeah, there's some, no, great so, stories. there's some great stories about Games Workshop, the early days of Games Workshop. Oh, well, it's, it's the same thing all the way through the 90s, you know. You have reached such and such studios. We're away from our desks right now. And you're like, asshole, you're out buying beer. You know, <laughs> you're on a beer run. Don't talk to me about being away from your desk. You don't have a desk. Your girlfriend has. So, um, That's great. That's great. So anyway, the, the thing is that 
you might be surprised to know that by 1998-99, it was not done to have your own game and to hold your head up high and say, I'm going to publish it. People would look at you and say, "What? oh, you're a vanity press. Yeah. And then I would turn around and say the, the awful truth that at the time was a, an awful, awful truth, which is that TSR just was bankrupt for $37 million. Yeah. And so I'm the one who's actually making enough to sustain my continued publishing activity. So which one of us is a vanity press again? And so, yeah. you know, that's that was that sort of thing was not said either. So, so anyway, the point is, is that a number of people were kind of excited by these details. And then they went on to do more stuff than they might otherwise have done. Um, so you have a number of people showing up with ideas for their games, getting some feedback, some a little, some a lot. So like really participating in the forge. And then you can see a few people kind of encountering this and going, huh, I get it. Let me go off and do my thing, which is all to the better, right? You know, I never, the forge was never a come ye hither and join and let's grow endeavor. It was always much more of a come in and go out. I want you to go away. Yeah. Is the idea. Uh, so tell so, me a little bit, tell me a little bit about what it took to actually publish your own game back then, because now we have right. so many, so much easier ways. Well, I'm in a position to tell you because in 1996, I put up my game Sorcerer in digital form for money. And it was, it was paid. It was a, it was actually a, it was actually a voluntary payment. Um, now, there was no PayPal at that time. You actually had to, like, buy a credit card swiper device, you know, thing, and actually had to to go through a lot of conniptions to do this. And um, in 1998, so that was in 1996, and then in 1998, I shifted to actually just outright purchase of a PDF. It turns out I'm the very first person to offer a role-playing game solely in digital form for purchase on the uh -huh. Internet. I, Monty I thought Cook. it was a book. I didn't realize. I thought it was a book. Right. Was it uh, made into that, a book eventually? Or, or Yes, or? The, the, yes, exactly. Uh, Monty Cook followed up just a couple of months later. And to my knowledge, we are the first per people actually to do that. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I actually did not have much ambition to publish a physical book. I had assessed the nature of role-playing economics and realized that it was ass. It was a way for venture capitalists to get tax breaks by losing money. And, <laughs> um, and it, was, it was completely worthless. You I mean, people published their own labors of love and there was no way on this earth that they could ever, ever, ever function as a business. And it, uh, and I won't, I've written extensively about this in the past. I won't go into it. It's just, it was nuts. Nobody would believe it today of just how dysfunctional it was. So That's then, yes. And so my call was, look, get it out there on this internet-y thing, do it for yourself, put it out in any way you want to, physical or otherwise, that doesn't make you go broke. Fuck the distributors because they're crooks and don't do it. There's no point the, the game stores are all completely dysfunctional. There's no way that you really want your stuff out there in the stores. I don't care how much you romanticize the game store you went to when you were 12. And, and as you said, this was a moment of utter crisis for the industry. You know, TSR going bankrupt. Um, I, I guess it was bought up by Wizards in, what, 96? It was. 
Um, um, the negotiations were around then, and and it really kind of clinched around 98, 99. Um, who else was still around? I mean, I guess Chaosium was still around. Chaosium uh, was completely exploded apart. They were right. they were only getting stuff made. They weren't publishing their core books, and they they were getting their supplements getting supplements published through license. Right. Um, there was all sorts of drama about who you know who was going to own Glorantha, who was going to own RuneQuest, which took a you know a decade and a half to get resolved. Um, mm. So we had Call of Cthulhu and uh, and Pendragon supplements being published by different companies. So Chaosium was effectively falling apart. Right. Um, and then you had the White Wolf games, and that's kind of interesting that's because cool. having shown up with such a bang in ninety one ninety two. You would think, and they were perceived kind of to be like the new dominators. But the fact is, is that they were funded by an inheritance. And when that inheritance ran out, they went through a series of financial disasters. That I mean, all that money spent on these really glitzy, you know, mage, everything, paying for the art, paying for these fancy covers and everything. And they, I don't know if they ever actually filed for a chapter 11, but they came really close and there actually had to be kind of a palace coup and a complete takeover, a complete reorganization and yeah. a complete re, re um, organization and re-release of the line by the late 90s or else that company wouldn't be around. Hmm. As happened at Chaosium a few years back as well, wasn't it? So, so well, it's, it's, believe similar. me, if I dip my toe in the waters of who said what to whom in the late 90s at Chaosium, everybody's going to scream actually and mass murder me. So, okay. you know, everyone well, has an opinion. It's... I've been hearing some stuff recently that very vague stuff going on there again, which really upsets me because I, I love Call of Cthulhu. I love Chaos. Human yeah. products. Well, I don't know. I'm dealing with them directly. To my knowledge, there is no drama that has touched okay. me directly. Oh, well, that's so, good. That's good. Because yeah. I, I really, you know, that that for me, they're a very important, uh, crucial. Uh, I, I, no, I completely live, agree. I, I live about four miles away from where they were founded now, which is oh, just wow. amazing. Okay. I live in Oakland, so it's mm -hmm. just amazing to be here. You may um, be interested to know that I grew up on the peninsula. Oh, sorry, you dropped out there. I didn't. I didn't yeah. You may be interested to know that I grew up on the Montreal Peninsula. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Well, I, I'm a, I only just moved to and I just and I, and I literally live about a mile away from Grizzly Peak, which is in, right, right. which okay. is in Glorantha, <laughs> yes, of course. which is so, wonderful. But but um, can I just? Um, it's really interesting because the whole White Wolf thing utterly passed me by. Of course, I had no idea right. what it was because and and kind of coming back five six years ago, it kind of faded away a bit. So it was almost like it came. It's also been yeah. It's it's the White Wolf has definitely undergone any. I mean, I refuse to learn all the ins and outs. And I even know enough people, but I refuse to try to parse it out. And like, and I hate taking sides in industry disputes and learning who said what to who and who's the bad guy and all that. I'm just like, oh, never mind. Believe me. Um, anyway, so, the but let me, yeah. let me get back to the thing I really wanted to tell you, which is that this whole idea of independently publishing your own role-playing game setting your own rules for how you were going to produce it and how you were going to distribute it, and you would be the beneficiary of any purchase, um, that's really what The Forge was about. And I had a name for it. I called it Independent. And the people I was working with, you know, this is the late 90s, said, oh, good, we're the indies. 
which in retrospect was a really bad idea to say. But at the time, it seemed like it was a fun way to say independent. Um, so the so that's what was meant by the in the home of indie RPGs. The idea was that you would this was the place where you would get good advice, support, and practical fellowship about how to get your own stuff done. So right. that's what the whole thing was for. Yeah. The idea that we would discuss role playing and how it worked was a topic of interest rather than the purpose of it all. And would it be correct to say, and, and I, I don't want to kind of make anyone seem like they weren't as engaged as anyone else, but would it, would it be fair to say that you also were really taking it seriously as a as an art form or as a? Yeah. Or I like to I like to say small a art. That's yeah. my that's the 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 only qualifier I would make. Um, that you know you know that the word art an art form has become so loaded and has been, mm. you know, a couple of centuries now that I don't think we're ever going to recover it from yes. all that baggage. So I'm going to put it slightly differently and say that I consider role-playing to be a medium. Yes. That's the right word for it, I think. It is a medium of expression. And it's also helpful because no, we all know that medium is divorced conceptually from content. Yes, it's, it's medium the, it's is not the, irrelevant. The way you experience it matters, but you can have. I mean, we know that a comic book. We now know properly that a comic book can have anything in it. Yes, but it right? took a long time to figure that mm -hmm. out. Um, yes, you know, you could say it took like seventy years, probably. Same <laughs> thing happened for novels. Yeah, right. Yeah. Same thing happened for anything. Um, yeah. it, the the Cinema. medium is always associated with the content in which it first takes on its commercial form. Mm. Um, and so that's that, and, you know, and then everybody treats it like it's some kind of revelation 70 years later that it doesn't have to be. And I so, kind of. So we are pretty early in the lifespan of, of role-playing games as a medium. And I think that's mm -hmm. the right way to, 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 to talk about it because it's a vehicle for delivering something. You know, that's what back that's when media. people were doing this with film, I would go all the way back to the point when people were using the kinetoscope, right, mm -hmm. to project moving images onto the wall just because you spun the carousel on a projector. Um, and go back there and watch as cinema evolves into what it becomes. Um, and then you kind of get an idea of what the 60s, 70s, and 80s were like for role-playing. Think about how constrained cinema was in terms of what properly was in a movie for a while. And yeah. it's that's kind of like what early role... Er, uh, okay, when we say early role-playing, it's tricky because there's the one that you remember that everyone forgot, which was that cornucopia of the late 70s. Yes. And then all of those became invisible just until, you know, just completely invisible, um, culturally speaking. And you had sort of a, a new bunch of companies that were associated with national distribution and associated with what Gen Con became in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, everybody kind of forgot Bushido. They forgot uh, what early Traveler was like. Traveler was now controlled by other people. And they 
made a very different kind of game. So the idea is that the, that first renaissance of work, which is highly underground, highly 70s in every imaginable way, um, you know, low budget production, art with boobies, any genre you want, all kinds of different systems. It's not that much different from underground comics and fanzines. Um, yeah, yeah, they're, and, they're very wonky. When you look mm -hmm. back at them, they the, the systems are are odd and, and idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, do you think to some extent, um, you know, being a someone that played those games and and kind of now being aware and kind of evolved a bit in the OSR um, kind of community, although I'm not really an OSR person, um, I don't play any of these. Oddly enough, everyone always says that. Carry on, I'll talk about that. <laughs> right. uh, do you think we somewhat fetishize the those early games and with that actually nostalgia. i don't think i don't think we do i think that um i think they're forgotten i think that the only I, I think they're not played they're not known in a way that i would call knowing um i i know i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because what i was trying to say was that a lot of the people who came to be called osr because i wanted i actually had the history of this written out but the term OSR did not really hit until 2000. It wasn't really coined until 2006 or so and didn't really hit or take off as a thing until 2008, 2009. And the, um, the, the thing I want to say about the people who glommed onto it is that many of them really weren't reaching back very far. Um, you do know, of course, that the first people to use the term were actually publishing D20 material. Oh. Okay, oh, so... No, I didn't know it, that. I, I thought they were all what like... They, what I they did... What they harked back to... What they harked back to was the form factor of the 80s modules. Right. That's one thing. Now, they weren't the only ones. There were a few people who were also doing what... I could, you guess you could call love letters to older forms, and they tended to be highly specific. There was Jeff McKinney's work, which really went all the way back, you know, to the 74 text. And then there was uh, Jim Raji's work, which definitely picked Menser 1985, Case Closed. I'm working with that. And there were a couple of other people. Then there was the crew who really turned this into, shall we say, an online culture. Uh, that would be Matt Finch and a couple of other mm. people. And so what they screen, did, right? Is that right? Right. So what what they there's yeah, there's I'll I'll have to go back. I actually drew a whole chart of all this stuff. That's, that's <laughs> oh, maybe you can send it to me. I'd love to say it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the idea is that they were they were basically recovering rules that hadn't been played for a long time. So um however they rewrote them and dressed them in ways that made them far more coherent and specific than they originally were they presented them as if they were coherent games right. and that's an important thing to understand you may remember just how difficult it was to parse the original advanced dungeons and dragons god yeah plus the yeah. fact i was 11 well, so, yeah, I was a little older, no, but but believe me, I knew people older than me, and they didn't. The, but, um, but I did learn what puissance meant. Absolutely, yes. You know. Absolutely, yeah. Um, <laughs> between D&D uh, &D and Marvel Comics, many of us walked out of there with a considerable vocabulary.
yeah but yeah, the yeah. uh the thing i'm trying to drive at is that the the a lot of the people who really started publishing their own work and a good example being jim malazuski um are people and, and jim raji also these are people who had brushed against the forge either of those two ways that i talked about or both yes. so the the notion of taking pride in your work of understanding more about the history of role playing standing up for what you liked and publishing what you liked i'm going to say yeah i'm the one who spearheaded that and that sense of the osr what they call diy which is a better name for it yes definitely with i called independence they're calling it diy but they mean the same thing that was inspired by the forge but it has been forgotten and even denied in the online culture of the osr yeah there, i mean there are two two reasons mm, for that there's another factor feeding into the osr which was a, a, it still exists. It's called Dragon's Foot Forum. I don't know if yes, you know. Yes, I'm aware of it. Yes. Right. Right. Well, Dragon's Foot Forum, of course, was a place where everybody came together because they loved old D&D. And, they, uh, and then they all suddenly realized over the course, well, over the course of several years, they painfully realized that there isn't one. That there isn't an old D&D. They each had a collection of highly variant publications. And each one thought that they were playing old D and D. Yeah. And so that so Dragon's Foot was this kind of cacophony of fellowship, a very kind of negative, hate the enemy kind of fellowship, plus this uncomfortable realization that for some was positive because it led them to be more research oriented to try to figure out what on earth actually had happened in terms of publication. It's it's so, very interesting. I I um I just literally today uh, published an episode where I interview um, um, Griffin um, or Archduke Griffin, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, who who is the um, who made the documentary Secrets of Blackmore, mm -hmm. and and he he was old enough to actually play right. like in the really early days. Um, he's probably about um in his late 50s now maybe early 60s probably late 50s um and uh that was that was really fascinating here and, and he spent a lot of time with david wesley and um the you know the gang who used to play with arneson and um all of those guys and really fascinating to hear this these alternate histories none of which kind of made it through as the the real right they never really entered the culture yes. at the time Exactly. Now, what, what I'm driving at is that the Dragon's Foot milieu was very much a circle the wagons against the enemy. And the enemy, of course, was D20 and 3.0. They even yeah. called it the, the game that, you know, the, the game that shall not be named. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, oh, and they also use the, uh, the slang term, use the slang term three tart. Oh, nice. Right. Yes, well, it was a, it was the it's the internet, right? Everybody's letting it all hang out. So um, the the point though is that you had this kind of circle the wagons and kind of ferocious protect mommy D and D. You know the the wounded deer needs to be protected. You know, circle up everybody, and um, that was interestingly enough when the OSR term got going and since it was using d20 and effectively 3.0 and even shh, for a little while fourth edition 
Oh, really? Yes. Um, then, then all of a sudden, 3.0 was okay. Right? right. Because now it had been sort of people were buying it and calling it OSR. So there was kind of this pragmatic acceptance. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I guess that's old school too, if you want it to be. And yeah, right about that time, it became like, very uh, clear. I got to <laughs> tell you, right at that time, it became amazingly clear that nobody had any idea what they meant by old school. Yeah. They only meant that they could. And frankly, it became strictly a marketing term. Yeah. It just became a way for something to put on your, your book. And it looked kind of dungeony or something. And in some, and, and everybody's coming into it with a completely different idea. You have tremendously different games. Now, for me, if you're publishing it yourself or, or close to it, benefiting from it, certainly, if you are doing what you want, then this is all to the good. Do you see what I'm saying? The OSR, as it ultimately became constructed, is properly the heir to the forge. In yeah. some cases, through the direct people involved. Absolutely. And and one of the things that really has um, impressed me about some of the stuff that's being labeled OSR now is, is how creative it actually is. That initially, I thought it was all just repackaging OD&D or, or um, BX. It or... absolutely is not. It's truly the design explosion that we saw at the Forge 2. Yes. Now, yes. this is something that I want you to focus on slightly a little, because in 2005, there was a schism at the Forge. Yes. Was there? And, Tell me. Yes. The, well, um, there were some people who thought that my insistence that we stay on topic when we talk and that we weren't there to hang out and get attention from each other, and also my insistence that the Forge would not become a publishing consortium. We weren't going to put out an anthology. We weren't going to make a company called The Forge. I would not provide a logo. Um, all those things. But there's a variety of different things. But a few people said, well, we're going to start our own website. And the person who did so, Andy Kikowski, I think did so partly because he was frustrated at the non-social angle of where you and I and I, I stomped on it horribly as a moderator, and I say that in a good way. Any status games, any attempts to try to, you know, be the cool inside group and stuff like that, people did it and people suffered from it, but I I killed it every time. Hmm. And people and so anyway, Story Games was founded as Andy said, where the cool kids from the forge can go. Ooh, ouch! Which really, yeah, I hated that. Yeah. And Andy's a friend. And to his credit, he actually, you know, stepped away from it after a bit. In my opinion, Story Games was set up in a toxic fashion, um, structurally, and it became a place where, okay, and I'm going to give him credit. He chose the word Story Game because it had no definition. He was looking for a generic name. Mm. He wanted a game, he wanted a name that didn't mean anything. Right. So that you could fill it with whatever game you wanted to make, which is a laudable ideal. But in the in the environment of that site, everybody was racing to the middle to conform, and a sort of pseudo game design, picked of pieces of several titles, sort of coalesced into what people called a story game. Yes, and everybody had to like do that 
and be kind of, you know, work their way through internet style discourse in order to gain enough status to be taken seriously at story games. And I really don't think it was a good development. So in many ways, do you see how I'm feeling frustrated? Because I see the OSR as a perfectly legitimate, I didn't make the OSR, but stuff I did helped the OSR come into existence. So I, I'm and fascinated. Yet, and yet people associate me with story games, which was formed literally <laughs> in defiance of me. Wow. Okay. So look, I mean, this is what this is what how history gets distorted, because of mm -hmm. course. I guess the simplistic view is that the Forge was the kind of breeding ground for these much more narrative type of games where um, it's about, you know, creating the the story together at the table. And, and the OSR is about rolling dice and going on dungeon crawls. But that, that, that really is, a it's one, it's wrong. And two, it's massively oversimplifying something that's much more complicated. Well, first of all, there's a couple of interesting points. Uh, we will, I hope, accept for purposes of the conversation that any and all role-playing produces small f fiction, right? I I agree. I'm very right. much I mean, I mean, and never mind what it says or what it's about or anything. I don't mean like you can, I don't mean something that your literary prof would approve of. I mean the fact that it's <laughs> fictional material, okay, and things yes. in it go, right? Yes. So if we're going to accept that that's the case, then there is no such thing as a narrative game. I hate that term. Mm. I've never used it. Narrative game. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? All role-playing games involve people narrating stuff. I hit the goblin is a narration. What yes. the hell are you talking about? Narrative game. <laughs> All right. What they're doing is getting confused, if anything. I mean, if there's any goodwill here at all, which in many cases there isn't. But if there's any goodwill here at all, now you might shift over to some of the writings that I've done, which involve the purposes of. And for a while, people called this GNS theory. I wanted to call it the big model, you know, stuff like that. But the, the fundamentals are quite simple. First of all, that we are doing this fiction making thing simply by talking and listening to one another. And we're going to call that a medium, just like you would call a, a you know, a, a, a canvas, a medium or film, a medium pages a medium stuff like that and mm -hmm. um and that you can do with it as you will and the important point being is that different people will do different things and that's why i'm not talking about style two different novelists can have different styles but they both make novels yeah. i'm not talking about style at all i'm talking about literally different purposes for which we do it so I think, you know, when I came across the big model and GNS and read through your definitions, it immediately um, appealed to my, um, the part of my brain that likes, likes un, un, you know, re deconstructing things, unpacking sure. them, mm -hmm. trying to understand the structure of how things work and, and really trying to analyze the beha our behaviors, you know, from that perspective. Um, do you think that people kind of misunderstood it in some ways and the, grossly the... and i will tell you exactly how they yeah. thought i was talking about technique so that if you played what i was calling at first gamist or narrativist that i must be talking about the nature of the experience in a very direct how do i roll how do i talk way Whereas I was talking about the purpose, 
And although I said system does matter, which means if you know your purpose, make sure that your system makes sense to do it with, that doesn't mean that I was making a taxonomy of rule systems. Okay. And so therefore, you can take good old old-fashioned RuneQuest, and if you really get into the ethical and dramatic conflicts that are inherent in the Gloranthan setting in which that system is nicely set up to problematize, then you're playing what I then called narrativist. Mm. Because that's what you're going to get is a drama about that stuff. And you don't know how it's going to turn out because you're using systemic means to do it. It has nothing to do with talking versus role. Yeah. Nothing. And I think and that's so, and I think that's the simplification that people often make to try and understand something that's that's quite that that needs a lot more thought and and well, self reflection. Have you have you taken any biology? Um, sadly, I um, I had to do it until I was fifteen. It's awful. At it. <laughs> I hated it, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I was a biology it. professor for fifteen years. <laughs> Five years in academia. Okay, I like so, drawing. I like drawing the the you know blood cells and things like that. Yes. Well. well, let me let me tell you a little bit anyway, <laughs> which is that uh, you may recall that they tortured you with pictures of a thing called a cell, and there yes. were ugly things in there that did a thing with lots of initials. Yes. Um, <laughs> now I'm here to tell you that unless they do that, you'll die. Okay. So which is a lot more interesting, to be honest. Right. Well, that's what I tell the students, you know, do you want to know why you're sitting here talking? <laughs> tell you, right? And so the um, the deal, though, is that you don't feel the metabolism of your cells. You mm. can't tell when you're high on, when you have lots of ATP in your cells and when you have low ATP in your cells. I know what that stands for. Right. Adenosine triphosphate, yes? There you go, right? Uh, memorization, memorization over comprehension. <laughs> There you go, right there. Somebody tortured you enough so that you had to spit it out and it's still stuffed in a shelf. It's back still in there. somewhere in there. Yeah. Well, the point being is that you can't monitor your adenosine triphosphate levels. It doesn't track to your sense of fatigue or hunger, which is experienced at the level of your blood, your organs, your central nervous system, and the way you feel the world as a larger creature. Right? So you're never going to feel what I'm talking about. But when I talk about it, the students are always, unless I tell them this, they're going to try real hard. I'm going to say, yeah, and then, you know, ATP levels go down. They say, ah, that's when I feel tired, right? Because that stuff's energy. Huh. You see what I mean? Yeah. Their experience of things called energy, which is to say hunger, fatigue, you know, alertness, all that kind of thing, is not the same thing as the actual biochemical energy and its processing inside the cells themselves. Hmm. So. I need to be very careful to tell people when I'm talking about role playing, when I'm talking about the equivalent of metabolism, which are the genuine interactions among human beings that we honestly don't like to think about. That you, I'll, I'll raise horrible things like where does fiction come from when there wasn't any first? I'll raise horrible things like does it matter that you've got the hots for that person across the table or not when you play? <laughs> All these things that everyone says, oh, no, 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 no. We didn't actually make fiction. We didn't try to make a story. We didn't, you know, that stuff, that social stuff, that's just social stuff. It doesn't matter at the table. 
all that stuff that nobody wants to talk about because it's no fun to think about. It's upsetting when you do, and it puts weird responsibilities in your head. You're like, wait a minute, if I came to the table with a purpose, then that that means that I'm breaking the wonderful gamer ideal that everybody can get along with everybody. And I don't want to lose that ideal. It upsets me. Yeah, this is that that I might actually want something different from that guy. He's not just a dick. He just this... wants something really, really, really different. Wait a minute. Yeah, right? this is going in a in a very interesting direction now because mm -hmm. um, what you're talking about is is actually the reality of what we're experiencing experiencing as human beings sitting in a room right. with other human beings. Absolutely, but the that's is... why I called it the big model. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. It's called the big model because anything we talk about in terms of the techniques of rolling dice is deep within the matrix of people doing what you just said. Yeah, yeah. That's why it's called the big model. It's take. It's not rejecting the social. It's saying nothing happens except inside the social. And so then do you think a lot of these new inventions like the X card and lines and veils and these kind of things and safety and consent and all this stuff. Do you think this is the beginning of a sort of awareness of, you know what, there is actually this real stuff happening. And this well, is there it is an awareness. I agree. It is. But on the other hand, much of it is so fearful and so touchy and, oh my God, it's out there. Let's make sure we never touch it. That I find that frustrating. Uh, you yeah. may not know that I coined the term lines and veils. No, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Point, yeah, it's in, it's in one of my supplements for Sorcerer, Sex and Sorcery 2003. Right. And right. the reason that I talked about lines and veils was not so that you would never touch them. It was so that you would not be afraid to get up against them as far as you wanted. That's what they were for. Yeah. They were saying, don't over-censor yourself. Use your real lines and veils, and you're suddenly going to discover that you and your friends are capable of vastly more, you know, explicit or challenging or, for lack of a better word, grown-up stuff than you thought. Everybody's tiptoeing around and nobody needs to tiptoe. So Find your lines. Get out there. That's wow. what those terms are for. Now, if, when you encounter them, it's a dick move to go over them. Yes. But they're out further than you think. That's what they were for. Mm. So the but here's the, here's the problem. So I think there's been kind of a pushback <laughs> against that, which is sort of a a uh, a fearful response. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. You were about to and, say. And, and and I think here's here's the problem. Here's the the inherent problem at the heart of of this thing that we do is that we're putting ourselves in an incredibly intimate space with a bunch mm -hmm. of people who might be strangers. It's mm -hmm. fucking weird. Um, oh, it's more it. than weird, my friend. Think about this. <laughs> in the history of stories, in the history of stories, and particularly the way that you and I have always consumed stories throughout our entire lives, it's always been transitive. The creator does it somewhere else. Yes. <laughs> and they, even if they make, I mean, they do it somewhere else and we don't look at them and we're taught even that it's somehow a little bit profane or sacred, but yes. either way, not really for you, audience member. Yeah, and look, that, the that, theater, that there's, there's they the have to, be a, to make a story, you have to be a genius. You have to be touched by a mm. muse, or you have to be extra special, neurotic, or something. Yes. And, and, and it's the, private. And yeah, and at the You'll theater. You never know what they do to make that stuff. It's yeah. 
And at the theater, there's the edge of the stage, and then there's and there's the curtain. Well, even and the theater's working. The theater's either working with a script, which is just the same damn thing, or it's working with a set of tropes. You see, improv doesn't make stories. Improv makes skits. Hmm. It doesn't. I mean, nobody improvises an actual plot in any meaningful way ever on stage. Right. And so the the point being is that the actual work of what constitutes a watchable or enjoyable bit of fiction from point A to point B, the improvisers are just good at picking up bits and pieces of the stuff they know and putting it into amusing configurations relative to the audience right now. But they're, but that's, they're not actually scripting. They're not actually making a story when there was none. And so the, the, I don't think that any of those media do it. So all of a sudden, here it is, a whole bunch of unwashed geeks get together, and not only do they do it together, they do it, like, out in the open, like, in front of each other. <laughs> and I'm saying, people recoil from this. I mean, you should see literary people, people who write, people who act. Theater people are often terrible role players. That stereotype is completely false. They are horrified at the fact that we are actually doing the profane and sacred act, the thing that was always kept in the back, right out in front of everybody, and we're doing it together. You know, uh, you obviously know the Robin Law's um, perspective on this, I would assume, that it's the first medium where you're the, the, the audience and the creator simultaneously. Right. that's a big part of it. Yeah, um, I found mm -hmm. that to be a very interesting way of looking at it. I'd never really thought about it in that way. Right. And I guess because when, un until you start engaging with it in a sort of more thoughtful way, it just, it is something that you're just doing for fun and whatever. And it's still, it's still something we do for fun, but then you start realizing there's something a bit more, um, uh, you know. Well, I'm going to use the music it. analogy. There's no reason to stop having fun just because you're doing it in a more thoughtful way. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I, I never want to give up the fun. Um, I don't think you have to be naive about your medium. Yeah. Um, I, I, but you're I right I, that the author plus audience phenomenon is absolutely central to this. And, you know, what's interesting is that with the advent of people broadcasting their games, then suddenly, you know, it all comes back full circle again and it's like well, it actually... does and i think in a both a, in a negative way in many cases because then you get instead of role playing you get slick skits yeah if you're yeah. a bunch of actors playing role players and the fiction is that these role players are playing a role playing it's not about the fiction that the role playing game is created yeah is creating that's not what's happening yeah. and um and i find that actually to be a fairly distasteful act for me to watch. It may be entertaining because these actors are funny, but I find it in relative to role playing to be not much different from athletic pornography. <laughs> yes. Yes. They're not really having sex. They're act they're actors playing people who are having sex. And the sex <laughs> itself takes on a particularly what's the word I want? Spectacle-based form that really isn't anything like actually doing. So this is this is great. This is good stuff. Thank you so well, I much for digging that because into I just this I just stuff. pissed on the one thing that everybody <laughs> claims is the great legitimizer of role playing. No, no, no. It's it's the marketing of it, isn't it? Like I was horrified 
So I lived in LA until six months ago when I moved up here to Oakland. Um, I was horrified about 18 months ago and I was driving along and I saw this huge billboard with Matt Mercer's face on it and the critical role. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? What? It's mm -hmm. like on a billboard in Hollywood. This is mm -hmm. nuts. And I was thinking, yes, it's great because it's bringing all these people into our hobby. All these young oh, people. Oh, no. Watch but it. Careful. Be careful. Watch. Watch We've out. been here before. We've been here before <laughs> in comics. Yeah. If only they make a great movie. I can't wait till the Critical Role movie comes out. And oh my God, they'll have Jack Nicholson. It'll be awesome. Mm. Well, really? Since when did movie making ever actually really help comics? It, it didn't, really. It didn't. The flow goes the other way. It never brings people to the comics. Everybody, I've got, I've lived through this like 15 times in my lifetime. Every single one of these blockbusters was supposed to bring the public, you know, slavering into the comic book store, desperate to buy the next issue of who knows what. Because now the movie had opened their eyes. Sorry, they picked on you. And they're going to come in and buy them now. They're going to be comic book people now. And that hasn't happened. Yeah. It hasn't, and it won't. And so the the deal here is this. I really don't want to crack down on anybody for making a living, right? I mean, if somebody wants to do this, that's great. But you're going to do it because you're a good performer from you as a performer to a separated audience. That's what you're doing. Now, I'm doing something which is vastly less uh, financially rewarding. I'm doing something which is, if you want to even, I've been called Quixotic more than once about role playing, and this is an excellent example. I am doing the thing where I think that if you are with people who are actually role playing and they're all normal people of different sorts, which means many, no, normal doesn't apply, we're all shapes and sizes. You know, different backgrounds, different accents, different this, different that, different locations if we're playing across screens. And you, and if we're having fun role playing, it'll be fun to watch us. And that's why I edit roughly. I don't clip out every um. I don't, I mean, I get rid of genuine, you know, interruptions and maybe a, a set of confusion or something, which would just be annoying. But for the most part, I'm leaving in pretty much exactly the way we interact when we do the thing we do. And you can see us respond to one another. You can see us in a naturalistic environment. You can look into, if we're, if we're playing by screens, you're looking into four or five different, like, homes. Um, you're seeing us in our ordinary environments doing play. And actually, I think I've got some examples that are quite fun to watch and participate in as a viewer. Not because we're performing for you, but because we're including you through these recordings. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do with Adept Play. That somebody somewhere is presenting role playing basically as the good sex it is. <laughs> I, I will have to check it out. But it, right. is it not safe for work? No. Well, I mean, depends on the people. <laughs> Depends on what game we're talking about. It depends on what uh, what the, the the casual language standards is of that group. Um, but the but the point being, from the standpoint of a literary theorist or a filmmaker, it is very much not safe for because these are people who are performing 
a public exposure of the sacred secret act. Hmm. We are actually generating fiction. And I emphasize that I could be the kind of game master who prepares an immense amount of backstory, an immense amount of quantitative preparation. And that stuff's fixed for play. I'm not going to alter it during play. No fudgies, right? And we go in and we play and we might have what I would call a very story now perspective because we are very focused on the engaged emotions of what's happening. And that's our purpose for being there. So um, look, um, we, we, we're getting nearly near to the hour. I like to right. these more or less to an hour because I, I've realized people stop listening after that or, or don't even bother if they see them. Yeah, I, ch- I chop them up into 15 minute sections. Get a yeah. lot, <laughs> get a lot better follow through. That's what I finally learned. <laughs> well, Look no, on. weirdly, weirdly, on uh, at least on podcast format only, the best ones are around half an hour, half an hour to forty minutes. They're, they're, it, it's it's weird. I think there's some kind of dynamic going on, and people right, like right. Well, it's because you can because you can do other things. Yeah, like, and uh, it's like it's yeah. a commute, it's a train yeah. ride, it's a whatever. So anyway, that aside, I just want to talk about how I um, spoke about sorcerer at, at this mm. conference, just to kind of come back to this. So, um, um, hand on hand up, I'm putting my hand up. I'd never read sorcerer. I'd never played it. I'd only ever heard of it. Uh, but I wanted to talk about you and I wanted to find, um, uh, you know, an image and obviously sorcerer was your first game. I guess. Up, right? Yeah. It's, it's first. my first, it's my first game. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I downloaded it and I put it in the slide. Um, I also got a slide of dogs in the vineyard as well, because I thought that was also an interesting image and something to talk about. And I, because um, I was talking about how gaming had gone from something to something else. Now, I don't necessarily think I got it entirely right. I think I fell into that trap you talked about by assuming GNS referred to discrete play uh, game types, which, as you said, is not correct. No, it's the purpose. Now, granted, yeah. you're going, let me give you an example. When uh, a number of years ago, when I played the hell out of D&D 3.0, um, we were playing, I was playing with a kid and his dad, and we've, and we, we've had relatively dramatic circumstances. I just dropped these characters into, you know, a situation that engaged their characters as family members, and there was a fairly grim little backstory that they were coping with. And we played for quite a while, and we forgot about experience points mm-hmm. we forgot and they should have leveled up and they didn't and nobody said a word we all just forgot now i'm not saying that leveling up is a bad thing or necessarily a particular purpose oriented thing but it's involved with purpose obviously the way that characters improve is involved with purpose and the fact that we forgot to track it shows you a lot about our purposes of play for playing that game in particular yeah. See what I mean? So system does matter. I'm not saying it doesn't. But I yes, am no, saying I, that you cannot make a laundry list of technique for each of the purposes of play. Yeah. And I think, you know, in a simpl- it, to, to simplify it for people to understand it, I think it's, it's good to get people thinking about what, where maybe one game leans or doesn't mm-hmm. lean. You know, because I, 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 think, right. I think it requires something different of you when you're, you know, in one of those modes. But I to, completely agree. That's to, what what a purpose is. But there you were talking about sorcerer. What yeah. Happened? So so I didn't know anything about it. I really mm-hmm. did know about kickers and bangs. Um, mm-hmm. 
um, and and but I didn't quite know what they were. Um, I'd, I'd I'd heard about them, and uh, they sounded fascinating. I was fascinated by that. But but I put up this image. And I hadn't really thought about the image until I was there, standing in a room of three, four hundred people, talking about um, you know. Uh, uh, the big model and talking about GNS and talking about D&D because &D. I, I was like who here has played a role-playing game and only about a third of the people put their hands up so I thought okay I'm gonna have to really simplify this but then I had this picture of Sorcerer and I don't know how um, how you feel about that image on the cover or how personally Which one? Uh, the, the one with the um, woman with the spiky blonde hair holding up mm -hmm. uh, with all the, the heroin and stuff yeah yeah Oh yeah, shit! I just realised. <laughs> I didn't realise. I didn't look at it closely. Obviously, I didn't do it. But nevertheless, I put this up and I said, "Now look at this image. This for me um, exemplifies how gaming changed at this point." <laughs> mm -hmm. And I said, "Look at this woman. She's powerful." She's got spiky blonde hair, she's cool, she's sexy, she's got tattoos, and she's a powerful sorcerer at the same time. And I said, this for me is an important image because this isn't what gaming used to be. I mean, maybe Vampire created this other thing which I didn't really know about. But Possibly. Certainly... I, again, I'll hark back to some of the early stuff. The cover of the original RuneQuest is a badass woman fighting the lizard. It is, but um, she's still wearing like um, Greek Roman armor or or, right, or right. something. Um, and yeah, she was. It wasn't so much the the power of the the female character, which I think is is an important thing. It was more like the tone of it. It was like it's, saying yeah. Yeah. that there's there's this whole there's so many other ways you can explore role playing, and they aren't right. all about going to a dungeon and fighting orcs. You know, right, right. The the there is there is a lot of originalism. In the originalism says whatever was first was first and best in capital letters, mm. right? And nobody would say that for other media. There's no reason to think that the content of a D.W. Griffiths movie is head and shoulders above all other content for movies, mm. just because that's what he had in it. Um, nobody would say that about the first novels, that what was in them was kind of the er novel experience and everything else is just a, a diversion or a curiosity. And that if we could, you know, if you really want to write a novel, you got to go back to the first novel and you got to do it like that. Right. And yet we do that in this hobby, don't we? Yeah, I, I yeah. think I, I think we do. Um, I think I think there's a I think the diversification, let's say, of the players in the last ten years, if I if mm -hmm. I venture into that minefield, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I, I think has been an extremely important thing because mm -hmm. I, I I think it it, it it has now made us think about other other stories and other narratives. Yeah, and, there's and, the, the the dynamics of that happening have actually been subterranean present in the subterranean realm of role-playing for a long time. And I think that there's a lot more historical digging to be done to see, like, when, uh, you know, when did queer stuff really start cropping up? When did, um, you know, when did any number of things like that start to crop when did we see our first black characters and illustrations stuff like that the historical digging on that is going to produce some very 
surprising insights for some people. Comics provides a great model. There are comics fans who revere given artists and have no idea that they were black, for example. Interesting. <laughs> um, and so it's and the same thing goes for any number of years and, you know, that being just one example of an ethnicity, but there are lots of other variables we can point to as well. I mean, there are famous names in role playing who I'm pretty certain were quite a shock to a number of their fans or people who were familiar with them by name when they showed up on Facebook. And they were like, wait a minute, you're a, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I always was. <laughs> and the person's like, wait, wait, no, <laughs> no, that's not possible. <laughs> right. So I think there's some history. I mean, I, I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying that just like with comics, you're going to find quite an interesting set of through lines that go back further than people think. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I, I play now with my current face to face group. None of them. The oldest one is twenty-seven. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I I'm. I'm fifty. Um, really I'm weird. granddad. I, I definitely. I'm older I than some totally of them. Totally have learned that from now on. I'm the old. It's just. It's, yeah. But I love playing with them. They're, some of them have never played a role-playing game before, and they they just took to it like ducks to water. They mm -hmm. something about the culture they grew up in just made this a, an inevitable thing for them and i found that wonderful and they come with no preconceptions i mean right. a lot of them come with stuff maybe from video games but not yeah. not in a bad way um they i've found that that tends to have less of an impact than i thought it would um yeah. the the thing that i think really causes more trouble than any other is um the an, an overdeveloped fandom, an uncritical fandom of certain genres or media that means that they feel they have to emulate what happened in their favorite thing rather than, than do something they want. Um, that happens. And then there's also another factor, which I've been fighting about for a long time that might be too much to go into for this interview. But the, <laughs> the idea of when you get trained to a way to produce the fiction that actually infantilizes you and makes you basically unable actually to do it. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing I want to drive at for the moment is this. I do think we're dealing with a new medium. I think that medium allows different purposes. And the best analogy is probably music in the sense of, you know, musicians listening to one another and jamming. It's not an exact analogy, but a lot of the dynamics are the same. But what I really want to point to is that different instruments do matter. You will get a different thing when people are using different instruments from that other group. Yeah. And I think that is a fair thing to say, and that therefore this distinction of talking versus rolling idiocy all forms of role-playing involve talking and listening to one another and nothing ever happens until it's confirmed verbally yes that happens you know you say i roll a 10 someone has to say you kill him right right it has to be confirmed in the fiction or else it doesn't happen and okay. so the um and you'll see it you you can actually see those moments of confirmation when you watch yourself and other people play that there is this give and take of does this happen 
Yes, it does. I think this happens. Yes, it does. Do you do that? Yes, I do. All that kind of stuff. And so I'm not saying that it that the dice rolling and stuff is unnecessary. I'm saying that it always needs, in order to function, what I call bounce, an element of unpredictability, an element of now I have to cook this. Dice, when they play that role, are extremely enjoyable. When they don't, they're boring as fuck. And with that wonderful right. statement, because that is a great way to end, I will have to say that... Um, All right, then. To a close. I mean, I could have talked for... But um, time is pressing on. And look, Ron, I just wanted to thank you so much. Um, you've yeah, given me I'd so love to much talk to again anytime about. if you'd yeah. like. Um, if you haven't dropped by Adept Play, which is just like it sounds, adeptplay, one word, dot com. If you haven't been there, I'm not claiming it's the world's most amazing website, but you will see a whole lot of fun play and a lot of fun discussion of I, I will definitely check it out. Thank you so much for your time. Um, as I said, you've given me so much to think about. Ah, well, follow up. Let me know what you think. And we can talk more. <laughs> Great. So thanks very much. And I will um, we'll say goodbye then. Thank you so much, Ron. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. It's a game we're role-playing. I'm a stranger and you're making mistakes.